Cuban food in Cuba isn't what it used to be. Where can we learn about that exciting, flavorful food of the island? In the kitchen of Patty Morel Ruiz in Florida, we talk about the Cuban table and more. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here with Patty Morel Ruiz, founder of TheMadTable.com. She's a cooking instructor, food stylist, recipe developer, and private chef. And she's written a book that everyone needs to have the Essential Cuban Cookbook. Welcome, Patty. Hi, Liz. Thank you for having me. So excited to be here. So, Patty, I always ask this question because it's always something I want to know. Why is it and how is it that you came to have a career in food? My goodness. Well, it, it started for me, it started as a little girl. My dad was an airline pilot. And back then, pilots would only be home maybe a week or two out of the month. So my dad traveled the whole world and loved to cook and he loved to eat and he loved purchasing like exotic spices. So when he was home, he was always in the kitchen cooking. And my way of spending time with with him was by being his sous chef. And I think I just fell in love, not only with food because I was exposed to all kinds of foods at a very young age. I remember being five, six years old and eating raw oysters. And that was really cool. And I loved that. But I also fell in love with being able to connect with people and spending time with my family, spending time with the people that I loved. And my dad just had such a great spirit about it because I remember him always having like a cocktail on his hand. (laughs) oversized fork he just made it fun it wasn't like he was reading a recipe no he wore a white apron and he just had fun in the kitchen so that's when I started to fall in love with food and with entertaining and I remember thinking oh I think I want to be like the next Cuban Martha Stewart (laughs) (laughs) so what was the favorite your favorite thing to make with your dad I want to say his favorite thing, and then it became my favorite just because I was enamored with everything he did, was pescado en salsa verde. He would make this whole fish with a green sauce, and that was his signature dish. Now, everything that he made was amazing. He was a gourmet chef. He would make chateaubriand, like the coolest recipes that you could think of, at least for me when I was a kid, that was like, wow. But I want to say that his fish in a green sauce was my favorite. And was it any particular type of fish, just whatever was available? Uh, Well, we're from South Florida, so we cook a lot of snapper, a lot of probably I'm assuming he used a red snapper is what I'm going to go with. 
well, red snapper is delicious anyway. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good choice. Yes. And so what did he put in his salsa verde? His salsa verde always had lots of garlic, onion, fresh parsley, a little fresh cilantro, and then his favorite ingredient to use, which I picked up that tradition and that habit is a sherry from Spain called Tio Pepe. So he would always add a drizzle of Tio Pepe to his salsa verde. So is Tio Pepe very dry? Is it a dry sherry or? Dry sherry. It's a dry sherry, but it just adds a touch, a very unique touch to your recipes. Oh, and that's my Secret. It's my secret ingredient. I've now <laughs> shared it with the world. And I would probably have a glass of Tio Pepe also while I was uh, cooking. I'm sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to do that with my grandmother. My grandmother was the person in my family who inspired me to cook. And my mother was an excellent cook, but my mother wanted to cook alone. It was like her private space. She was kind of Zen while she was cooking and she didn't want anybody to cook with her. Whereas my grandmother would let me get, make a mess and, you know, put my hands in whatever she was doing. And so it was much more fun to cook with my grandmother. When my when I got older and was more accomplished, my my mother would allow me into the kitchen with her. But it was my grandmother who really inspired me because she just let you just really experience it, even if it wasn't directed into some wonderful dish, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And I always I always tell that to my students because as a culinary instructor, Obviously, it depends what level they're in. But if it's someone that's never cooked before and wants to take an enrichment class, then I focus more on the experience and don't freak out if they cut the onion wrong. Because let's face it, if you've never cooked before or if you're a child, this could kind of make it or break it for you in the kitchen. That's right. Yes, yes. And of course, you also learn, I think, and this is something that I always love, if you like go to a foreign country and you take a cooking class there and you learn about the customs and the culture of the kitchen, which is different from place to place. And I love it when you have new people trying to cook and it says, you know, add an egg or something and they put the whole egg in it instead of cracking it because they don't realize that you need to open the egg. <laughs> That's always, that's always, but if you're a child and you've learned because somebody let you make that mistake, you don't have to make it again as an adult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Liz, I've been teaching for years and I have to tell you that kitchen confidence is the key. They have to feel confident whether they do it right or wrong, but at least it takes the fear away. Yes, I think, I think you're right. And I also think that when you allow children to cook with you, they also are more willing to be experimental about what they eat. Oh, and yeah. that is a really important way to introduce children to things that we sometimes think they won't eat because we almost force them into not eating it by our expectations. Mm -hmm. And they don't have those expectations. We impose those things on them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, well, they have a sense of pride. If they're part of the process, they have a sense of pride. My little granddaughter, Lily, she's nine years old. She was at the house last weekend and I was making garlic confit. 
I didn't know what else to do with her. We had already made strawberry basil lemonade and we had made brownies. And I really wanted to make garlic confit for my dinner to include it in my in our dinner. And I said, Lily, do you want to make garlic confit with me? She's like, sure, what is that? So she helped peel the garlic. Obviously there's not much to it, right? Because you slow cook it. Mm-hmm. But she just felt so excited to have been part of the process that she was willing to have some in a piece of toast. So, you know, it's kind of fun to have a nine-year-old try the garlic spread. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That is, that is. I have, speaking of garlic confit, I have quick way to make, it's not quick, an easy way to make it. I bought a little slow cooker that's really a potpourri thing where you are supposed to put water and maybe some spices and you plug it in and it heats the water and it makes the spices go into the air. Uh Instead of doing that, I put oil in it and put my garlic in it and plug it in and then just keep an eye on it until I think that it's cooked enough and it keeps it the same temperature. You don't have to watch it quite the way you do on the stove and then you unplug it and it stops cooking. (laughs) And it's magic. It's brilliant. I love that. Yes. (laughs) That's amazing. So tell me about your connection to Cuba. I know you're in Florida, but give us your background, your Cuban background, your heritage. So I'm Cuban American. I was born in Miami, but my mom and dad are both from Cuba. And they were both born in Cuba? We're both born in Cuba. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather was from New York and he went to Cuba for business and married a Spaniard that was living in Cuba and they, he stayed in Cuba. They raised, they had six kids together and raised all their children in Cuba. My dad, funny enough, went to college in LSU. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So he came to the States for college. Then he went back to Cuba. This was obviously before the revolution. Mm -hmm. And he got married. He became an airline pilot, went to flight school in England, went back to Cuba. And he flew for Cubana Aviación, which was the national airline for Cuba before Castro. And in 1959, they fled to the U.S. and started all over. Oh, my. Yes. My godmother was from Cuba and she was um, a consul or worked in the consular office in New Orleans, the Cuban consul. And because there was a lot of chipping going on and New Orleans has a big port and there was a lot of back and forth between New Orleans and Cuba, then she just couldn't go back. She just stayed in New Orleans. But my parents knew her because they were in freight forwarding. And so they were in the shipping business. And so they knew her because they got to know all the different people in the consular offices because they were constantly having to have papers stamped and signed and you're paying for bills of lading and all kinds of things that you had to do for stuff to go back and forth. And they became friends. My parents became friends with her. And then she was my godmother. 
And she was always talking to me about Cuba. And she kept saying, one day I'm going to take you there because she wanted to go back herself, of course, because she wasn't able to go back, but she never made it back. But I went, I went about six years ago. No, it's probably a little longer than that now, seven or eight years ago, when things started to loosen up and they were starting to let you go without it having to be some kind of educational thing. And of course, I got a very limited view of what it was like, because there's this area where all the tourists are kind of kept in. And so you don't have the real money, you just have tourist money, and it's hard to to get away from your minders. But one day, we were brought to this little market, and our minder, our official minder, went across the street to have a coffee with some friend, thinking that we would all be so fascinated by this market that we would just be good children and stay in the market. And all of us went out the back and we started walking around (laughs) in Havana and we had arranged with her, you know, to be back, but she was going to be back at a certain time to pick us up and go in the bus to some other place. And so we were all back in time, but we went everywhere And we went on the black market and got real money and did all kinds of stuff. And so that was our escape for a few hours. (laughs) But that was the only thing that I, I mean, I enjoyed it immensely. And I learned a lot about Cuba. I even went to a culinary school, their national culinary school. And had a class there. And that was very interesting because, of course, we made Roba Vieja. That was what we had done. And before that, I had gone to one of the squares where people were selling used books. And I wanted to have a book that was written before the revolution. I didn't want to have anything that was later than that. So I brought that book, that cookbook with me to the class because I wanted to follow along. And of course it was written in Spanish. I read it better than I speak it. So I could read the recipe And I couldn't believe that they said in the class that we don't use tomatoes in our ropa vieja. And we don't use, oh, they were all these things that they didn't use. They didn't use peppers. They didn't use all these things because they said that those things were brought by the Spanish. And I thought, no, those things were here. They were, those are new world things. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was really interesting that they gave this excuse for not using certain vegetables and things that were clearly in this old recipe that they didn't use. I thought it was very interesting. Right. Actually, the heart of every Cuban recipe starts with a sofrito, mm-hmm. which is equivalent to a mirepoix. Right. And our sofrito includes peppers, like bell peppers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was very, very interesting. And then they fed us, not the the ropa vieja, but they fed us some kind of like seafood stew that they made. And it had broken pieces of shell in it intentionally. Mm -hmm. And I can understand using that to make a stock, but I would have taken it out as something that I was going to serve because nobody wants to eat that, but they didn't. And I thought, oh my gosh, this food, 
I said, you have to go to Miami for Cuban food. Don't eat it in Cuba. Miami is a great place for Cuban food. Absolutely. And you know, it's just the the Cuban food prior to the revolution is really completely different than Cuban food now. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. It is definitely crazy. And they also, they eat a lot. You can tell the Russian influence. They eat a lot of borscht. Mm-hmm. They, um, and, and they must have gotten before the hard times when there was the the fall of the Russian of the Soviet Union and then were hungry for that time, they must have gotten a lot of food like turnips and things that, that were Russian. And so that also influenced the food, which yeah. I think is also very interesting. Yes, it is. So the Cuban food that I grew up eating is primarily, I would say, Spanish inspired. Mm-hmm. inspired from Spain. And some of the spices that we use are also a little bit African inspired. Right. right. It's some mix. And then we also eat white rice, a lot of white rice, but Cuba prior to the revolution had a huge Chinese community. So that's where the white rice in spoke comes from. Right. Is from the, all the Chinese that used to live in Cuba. So Tell me about starting your website, The Mad Table. The Mad Table. So like I mentioned earlier, I really wanted to be the Cuban Martha Stewart. (laughs) Love a beautiful table. Love everything that the table represents, right? It's not just the food. It's the memories. It's just the connection that you make. It's how it, it makes you feel whether you're having a dinner party and you have some friends and you just want to sit at the dinner, dinner table and hang out and share stories. Or if you want to have a family meal and catch up on how your children's day went, whichever direction you want to go, the table is just like the hub. So when I was trying to think of a name, I had my best friend's daughter was at the house. She just had a baby and she's super creative and I wanted to pick her brain. And we had been at it for about five hours and her nine month old baby was crying. And I think I was driving Kimberly crazy. And I said, Kim, the name of my business has to have something related to the table because it's all about the table. And she finally looked at me, she had had it. And she said, the mad table. And I was like, Uh-oh, did I just drive you mad? She goes, yeah, a little bit. So that's how the mad table came about. Kim came up with the name. I kept insisting the table had to be in it. But I was thinking more of, I don't know, uh, flowers and food or plates and basil. Uh, I have no idea what I was thinking. But that's how the mad table started. I worked as a home economics teacher for a long time. And I've always been around food. I feel like I have been in the industry even before I was in the industry, because even as a mom or as a young Cuban, I was always entertaining and my guest or my crowd was like my big Cuban family. So I unofficially, cooked for years and then eventually you know I always wanted to go to culinary school but as a mom I knew that wasn't practical so it was one of those dreams that I kept putting in the back burner and 
I raised my two girls. And then when my two girls were like 17 or 18, my husband and I decided to go to Ukraine and we adopted two boys from Ukraine. Oh, wow. So I parented four times. So I never, I was never able to go to culinary school. And when my youngest son was like 12 years old, I was like, you know what? I'm done. I am now going to, I was, I had already been working as a home economics teacher and it was something, and I knew a lot about food, but I really wanted to go to culinary school. Mm-hmm. If anything, just for me, uh-huh. not because I wanted to go work in a restaurant. That's not what I wanted to do, but I had too much passion. And so I, this was years ago, obviously, but I did enroll in culinary school. I went to culinary school. I graduated. I was so excited. I never worked in a restaurant, but I worked as a private chef. I, you know, going to culinary school just opened the doors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was great because it exposed me to a different world that was out of my bubble. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I totally, I totally understand. And I think the fact that you went is just the proof positive that you were born to cook. Yeah, that was, that was, and it doesn't have to be in a restaurant. I totally agree with you. Yeah, it doesn't have to be in a restaurant. And I knew that my passion was a lot stronger than maybe my sister's passion, who also loves to cook, but I would go to sleep at night. And if I was planning a dinner party, I wouldn't give it a sleep because I stayed up all night. My hamster wheel was always spinning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you decide to write a book? Uh, So I've always wanted to write a book. It's something that I always wanted to share, not necessarily with the world, right? I wanted to write a book for my family. I wanted to leave like, uh, I wanted to share a little bit of our family and our family recipes for my nieces and my nephews and my children and my grandchildren, something that they could cherish forever. And I've been wanting to make it a project for a gazillion years. And I always reached out to my cousins and I kept saying, let's put all our recipes together and no one ever took me up on it. I'm like, what in the world? Let's do it. No one was really, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But so I received an email last August from a publisher asking me if I was interested in writing a Cuban cookbook. And I'm like, yes, finally. (laughs) So, you know, it was a long desire of mine to write a book. I never hunkered down because you definitely have to like hunker down and write all your recipes. Never did that until I was approached by a publisher. And I'm I was so thrilled because it forced me to just do it. And I wrote them down. Now that I wrote my first book, I'm so ready to write another book. (laughs) (laughs) And would it be another Cuban book or would it be something else? Um, No, I think it should be Cuban, maybe Cuban fusion, Uh maybe add a little bit of my tablescaping and my entertaining tips, Uh maybe more cocktails. Uh Uh Uh, But definitely I want to keep it in the Cuban fusion realm. So one of my absolutely favorite recipes in here is your tostones. I just really think that those are delicious. I have a, a banana, I mean, a plantain in my backyard. So I have very fresh ones that I can 
I can access. And it was just really fun to have this kind of a recipe to play with uh-huh. um, because I haven't been making them and I've been sauteing them and putting like peanut sauce and things like that. But this was like, oh yes, this is what I need to make. This will be something else to add to the repertoire. And oh, it's just really, really delicious and not hard. And I think that's one of the things that I loved about your cookbook is that things that have a really complex complex flavor that you think must be so many steps and so hard to really put together are not. You really, really help make this sort of unfolded so that it can just be a straightforward recipe without 35 steps to make this work, you know, and I love that about it. Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much. That's something that I learned from, I guess, having my website is my audience really just wants simple recipes. Everyone wants to make something delicious, but at least my my crowd, most of the people that follow me, their moms are busy professionals and they don't have time to do anything that's too chefy, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I tried keeping it simple. And you're right, maybe even something like my uh, rabo encendido, the oxtail, the braised oxtail, that mm-hmm. might be like really complicated to someone that doesn't know. But when you open the book, you see it's not. It's just simple ingredients have a lot of flavor. Right. Plus the other thing is, and uh, you know, I, I already knew this because people do the same thing about the food of New Orleans. New Orleans food is well seasoned, but it's not hot. It, it's, and people think that when you say it's spicy, that it means hot. And it just means that you use spices in it and there's complexity in the use of spices. And I love that about um, about your food is that you really do have complex flavors and a, a depth of a real depth of flavor that comes from not only, you know, caramelizing onions and things like that, but also because you use spices. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that that's what people need to really understand is that sometimes you can make something so hot that you can't taste anything anymore. And that, that that's not the point. The point isn't how hot can you make it? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And it also makes me think about the pre-prepared spice mixes that have so much salt in them. Mm -hmm. And when you want to add more spice with, with that mix, then you make your things too salty because you're adding salt every time you add more spice and you actually simply give people the spices that they should add and not say, oh, you know, this over-the-counter thing um, where you're going to literally make stuff too salty simply because you don't control the salt. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, well, like my mojo, the, my mojo marinade, I have that in the book. A lot of people tend to buy it in a bottle because they don't know how to make a mojo. The recipe, it's just a bunch of garlic that you're mashing up and you add sour oranges. And if you don't have access to sour orange, then you can use a mix of orange and lime. It's just a citrus, a citrus garlicky sauce. That's it. Yes. Yes. 
So is it is it fairly easy in Florida, especially, to get all of the the fresh vegetables and fruits that you need in order to make Cuban food now? Is that pretty pretty regular? It's very accessible in Miami everywhere, even in the street corners. There can be what we call a biandero. A biandero is a person that sells vegetables. Uh-huh. So they stand at street lights and you can buy avocados, plantains, sour oranges, fresh tomatoes. You don't even have to go to a farmer's market. <laughs> Pretty nice. They come to you. Yes. Do they have street calls where they... They are telling you what they've got and come and see or. Uh... Well, we don't have any street calls in our part of town, but maybe in Little Havana, that's possible. Yeah. 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 That would, I I remember the street calls in New Orleans. I mean, they don't exist anymore, but, right. but people would come by with a cart or sometimes they would have a, a cart, like a, a wagon that was being drawn by a mule and people would go down the street and there were wonderful calls about what they had, whether it was watermelon or whatever it was. You know, yeah. you know now that you say that you just triggered a childhood memory. I think I remember like a truck driving by our street when I was a child with a loud speaker. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then the driver would be on the speaker, letting you know what he had in his truck. <laughs> it, it was kind of like an ice cream truck, except it had vegetables and fruit in it. And I mean, it wasn't closed. It was usually just an open bed truck, but then you could go outside and he would just stop in the street and you could get whatever you needed. I I remember that. Yes. And a lot of root vegetables. We eat, Cubans eat a lot of root vegetables like malanga or yuca. And Uh those are very popular also here in South Florida. Very accessible. Yes. Well, I want to tell you that this is absolutely the most wonderful, the most wonderful and accessible cookbook. It covers everything that you, th- you know, you think of uh, as Cuban, but it also makes it seem that you can, you can duplicate it. It's not the same as, as eating it in someone's home who grew up in the traditions and it, with that heritage, but if you can at least eat it in someone's home so that you know what it's supposed to taste like, these recipes will get you there. And I just think that you've done a fabulous job and everybody needs to add this cookbook to their arsenal, especially if they love Cuban food and they have access to things like pineapple and plantains and what what other kinds of things that, that they might need. So thank you. I think it's really remarkable to have a book that has this much depth of flavor because I made a number of these recipes and every time it was like, yes, there's real depth of flavor here. This is really, really good. So thank you for that because it's very soon this book is going to be very dirty, full of grease stains and other stains because it's going to be well used. Now that you just said pineapple, you have to try my grandmother's pineapple and avocado salad with watercress. It's in the book. It is hands down one of my favorite, that and the Cuban meatballs. Okay. I have have (laughs) not tried either one of those two. I will definitely get a pineapple 
and make that a watermelon is pretty easy here, but uh, I'm going to get a pineapple and make sure to make that because it's okay. Yes. Yes. Sure. So thanks so much, Patty, for, for joining us today. This has been a delightful conversation. I'm so happy to, to have this talk with you. Thank you, Liz. I'm so excited that I was able to chat with you. It was a lot of fun. And just thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.